When she showed up along the roadside that day, she said she'd been using kitty litter as her toilet. She'd been tied up to a pole inside a closet and fed grits from cheap paper plates, the horror. The kidnappers had branded her with some sort of biblical passage while preparing to sell her to a cop. Of course, every bit of this was a lie. And if you think you've heard this case, stick around for the recent rulings. This is the story of Sherry Papini, the real-life Gone Girl. Hi friends, I'm Katie, and this is Katie Does Crime. When Sherry Papini's husband, Keith, came home in the late afternoon of November 2nd, 2016, and found their Mountain Gate, California house empty, he called his children's daycare to find out when his wife had picked them up. She hadn't, they said. Her husband used the Find My iPhone app and found her phone and earbuds near an intersection about a mile from their house. It seemed a little strange that the phone seemed to have been placed just so precisely two feet off the road, but strands of her blonde hair had been tangled in the earbuds, which could only mean one thing. Sherry had been kidnapped. The FBI was called in to help with the search for Sherry, and hundreds of tips flooded in. Sherry was born in that same area of California on June 11, 1982, and was just the kind of person who gets worldwide attention after disappearing. She was a white blonde beauty with startling blue eyes and Disney princess features. She had married her husband in 2009 after meeting him in middle school. He was her first kiss. She was now a devoted mother to their two and four-year-olds, and six years into their marriage, Keith said, sure, they had the occasional fight like any couple does. But their last fight was a month ago, over a messy room, not anything that would cause investigators to look Keith's way. With nothing but support for him and his family, a GoFundMe account for the Papinis raised more than $49,000. 22 days passed while the search continued over multiple states, and then one day, Thanksgiving Day 2016, a truck driver saw Sherry wander along an interstate at 4 a.m., about 150 miles from her home. She was even thinner than usual, 87 pounds, her long hair chopped off. She had a clamp on one wrist attached to a chain around her waist and a binding on her ankle. There were burns and bruises across her body and that brand on her right shoulder. Her nose looked broken and there was a bag over her head. She refused to answer detectives' questions at the hospital, so they allowed her husband to record her account. Sherry said two women had passed her on the road as she was out for a run and then backed up pretending to need help and then kidnapped her at gunpoint. They forced her into a dark SUV and possibly tased her. She wasn't sure she kept falling asleep. And you hear about these people who can sleep anywhere, even standing up, but wow, during your own kidnapping. One of the women was 20 to 30 with curly hair and thin eyebrows, and the other was 40 to 50 with straight hair, thick eyebrows, and breath that smelled like sweet coffee. And the police were like, coffee breath? Say no more. We know exactly who the perp is. Sherry couldn't remember much, and what she did remember couldn't really help the investigators track down her kidnappers. But the local sheriff said it wasn't unusual since Sherry's face had been covered at times, and memory loss is not uncommon for victims of trauma. The women, after all, had kept Sherry chained up in a closet with a bucket full of kitty litter for a toilet in a room with a boarded-up window. The older one would beat her and also hit the younger one if she ever talked to Sherry. They burned her. When she tried to escape once, that's when they branded her. They mostly spoke Spanish and played loud music that Sherry described as that really annoying Mexican kind. They often wore masks, including bandanas and, 
lace masks. They told her that someone was going to buy her, and he was the one who wanted her branded, and he was a cop. So that's why she was afraid to talk to law enforcement when she was found along the highway. The sheriff called Sherry cooperative and courageous during the intense interviews that eventually happened with investigators. Sherry said she understood the reason for all the questions because she watched a lot of crime shows on TV. This is probably how she had known to pull out some of her hair to leave tangled up with her phone and earbuds along the side of the road as a clue. On the last day of her abduction, she said that she had heard a gunshot and then the younger woman took Sherry out in a car and dropped her off near the highway. No one knew if Sherry was the specific target of the kidnapping or a chance encounter, and no one knew the reason for the release, and no one could figure out what that brand said. In the months after her reappearance, the media continued to report on her case, calling her the California supermom and saying that she was living quietly out of sight with her family, trying to put her life back together. Neighbors said that it was weird that they had never seen her jogging before or after that day when she was abducted, but investigators continued to treat the case as if Sherry was telling the truth. They made police sketches that showed the women in masks because Sherry hadn't seen their mouths. They showed her photos based on tips that came into the FBI, but she couldn't identify anyone. Her story would change a little along the way. The branding now happened because she was making too much noise and she had to apologize for lying about getting a massive foot wound while supposedly fighting her attackers. So some were skeptical about whether or not the kidnapping might have been staged for money. Now, Sherry has a bit of a past, after all, with the police. A police incident report from 2003 shows that Sherry's mom once called the police for help when Sherry was apparently self-harming and blaming her mom for the resulting marks. And Sherry's father and sister both reported incidents where she burglarized and damaged their homes. It was ultimately a DNA match that would take Sherry down years later. When she was recovered that Thanksgiving day, Sherry had been wearing a gray sweatsuit and the underwear she was originally abducted in. In the underwear was DNA from an unknown male. In 2020, a familial match came back linking the DNA to the family of Sherry's ex-boyfriend. A bottle collected from the ex's trash confirmed the match. They also found a Facebook photo on the ex's brother's Facebook page that looked suspiciously like the one Sherry had described being strapped to and branded on. This ex-boyfriend's name was James Reyes, and he works at a sports shop in Costa Mesa, California. In August 2020, ex-boyfriend James was interviewed and admitted that he had helped Sherry run away from what she said was her abusive husband. The police supposedly weren't helping her even after she filed reports against him. They'd been friends since they were 13 or 14 and had previously been engaged, so of course he just wanted to help a good friend. Sherry had called him one day out of nowhere and said she'd been saving some money and had a plan to escape and be with him. They got prepaid phones to be anonymous and made a quick plan for him to drive 600 miles from Southern California to get her. No one else had helped them. There were no Hispanic women involved. James said Sherry lay down in the back seat to avoid being seen and slept for most of the drive. So at least she wasn't lying about the sleeping part. For the 22 days Sherry was supposedly kidnapped, he said that she stayed inside James's house, allowing him to clothe and feed her and sleep on the couch while she took the bed. They talked and hung out. She cleaned the house a couple of times. He boarded up the bedroom window for her. She purposely seemed to be eating small portions to lose weight, and she cut her own hair. He was confused about why she was beating herself up, although he obliged when she asked him to shoot a hockey puck at her leg and brand some phrase onto her shoulder using a wood-burning tool from Hobby Lobby. He wanted to keep the tool and maybe enjoy a wood project in the future, but Sherry wouldn't let him. 
She also had a rash all over her arms from using some sort of cleaning supplies to scrub stains out of his carpet. And I'm just like, wow, what a romantic time these two had together. She's chopped off her hair in a skeletal. He's not allowed to have any fun with his wood tool. She basically has her room boarded up and doesn't leave. And she's covered in hives. So it's no surprise that Sherry asked him to take her home just before Thanksgiving 2016. She missed her kids. James thought that maybe they'd get back together. He wasn't totally sure of the plan. But he dropped her off on a road off the freeway and then went back to have Thanksgiving dinner with his family. She'd bound her wrists and ankles and put on that chain in the car, tossed her prepaid phone out during the drive, and threw anything from his house that could be traced back to her into a dumpster. James didn't have a TV, so when he finally saw the news stories about Sherry's supposed kidnapping after returning her, he didn't like what it could mean for him, but he felt like the police would come to him if he was in trouble. Investigators pieced together evidence from telephone records, James's family who knew Sherry was staying with him, the inside of James's house, and even Pinterest, where they found that Sherry had made a secret board called Gift Ideas, where she'd pinned photos of wood-burning tools. They interviewed her in August of 2020 and showed her the photos of the table and the closet from James's house, the table and closet she had described supposedly being branded on and tied up in, but she denied that they were the same. She said she hadn't seen James in forever and had never called him until her husband left the interview room. And then she admitted that, okay, she had talked to him a little on his work phone, but nothing more. Two Hispanic women had totally abducted her. Really? So this all happened years ago. Why is Sherry in the news now? Well, it was just earlier this month, March 2022, that after six years, Sherry was arrested and charged with making false statements to a federal law enforcement officer and also mail fraud. Because Sherry received $30,000 from the Victims' Compensation Board for her trauma and injuries through the mail. And you do not mess with the U.S. Postal Service. Sherry also cost taxpayers over $15,000 in the attempts to search for her. During her first hearing, she had to surrender her passport and was ordered to enroll in a psychiatric program. She could face up to 20 years in prison and a fine of $500,000 if convicted, but is currently living free after paying her $120,000 bail. Legal experts say she could take a plea deal and end up just serving detention at home. Which, can you imagine? Here's a woman who got 30 k from the government for making up a story, and also nearly 50 k from people like you and me on GoFundMe. That money, by the way, was partly spent paying off Sherry and Keith's credit cards, and the rest was transferred to their personal bank accounts to spend on whatever they liked. So she makes money while calling out Hispanic women for supposedly being dangerous. It's no surprise that investigators found this blog post from 2003 on a white supremacist website where someone with Sherry's maiden name said she was proud of her blood and Latina girls at her school hated her for being drug-free and noble. Sherry's ex-husband said it was written by someone else as a prank and that he and Sherry had a diverse group of friends, so you know, they can't be racist. And speaking of ex-husbands, there are a number of men in this story who aren't Sherry's current husband, Keith. Sherry originally married another man in 2006 because she either needed his military medical insurance for a heart murmur or problems with her lady eggs. Sherry's current husband and ex-husband tell different stories. She seemingly cheated on him because when he returned from a deployment, she told him she'd found someone new. After they divorced, friends told him Sherry had a history of lying and had made up stories about her family abusing her as a child. Sherry also had two men's numbers stored in her phone under women's names when she supposedly went missing in 2016. The first man had spent the weekend with her once in 2011 while the married Sherry was out of town for work, and they'd continued to flirt over text over the years. 
The day before her disappearance, she texted him about meeting up. The second man had dated Sherry years before she was married and called her an attention-hungry person who told stories to get attention. And then there was ex-boyfriend James, who said he slept on the couch while Sherry stayed with him, but his DNA in her underwear might argue otherwise. So what do you think? Did Sherry just need a little vacation away from her husband and kids? Or did she do it all for some attention? A judge recently ruled that Sherry isn't allowed to view documents about her case unless she's with her attorney, and she's not able to make copies nor write anything down. The idea is that she shouldn't be allowed to profit off of her case after the fact with a book deal or a documentary. But it sure does feel like she'll try. Thank you for tuning into my podcast episode. I'm just a true crime fan like you are, and I really appreciate you taking a chance on me. Please subscribe and tell a friend if you like spending this time together. You can also find me on YouTube in the flesh by searching Katie Does Crime.